0: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks very much for joining me. I just finished talking with Sabine Arnaud about her new book, On Hysteria, the invention of a medical category between 1670 and 1820. And this came out with the University of Chicago Press in 2015. Now, what the book does is take this really, really interesting case study of hysteria And use it to explore a number of kinds of issues that aren't necessarily um, only local to hysteria, but allow us to open up um, into some really interesting considerations of methodology, of the historiography of science and medicine, of the way that writing Um, creates and is created by bodies um, of writing genres and a whole lot more. So right in the preface, what Sabine does is lays out at least some of the issues that the study allows us to explore. And I want to just give you a sense of some of them. Uh, as a kind of introduction to lead us into the conversation. So studying hysteria, according to the book, allows us to consider issues that include, um, on the one hand, the role played by language in the definition of any medical category, um, and the book really pays very careful and very special attention to written medical genres and also written genres that aren't explicitly kind of calling attention to themselves as medical in order to consider narrative strategies and other kinds of discursive and writing strategies that are responsible for the emergence and transformations of this pathological category. It also um, looks at, on the other hand, I'm I'm actually going to give you lots of different hands. So imagine as I'm talking a body with many, many hands. So on another hand, the way that hysteria becomes a category in a larger context of the um, increasing importance of categories as objects. It also looks at, at, on yet another hand, in our many-handed body, the way that hysteria of underwent transformations um, in accordance with the political and the religious contexts um, and interests of the authors who are writing about it in these very different genres uh, uh, across the time period that Sabine is writing about. It also looks, on yet another hand, um, at the relationship between the transformations of understanding hysteria as a pathology and transformations in the way modernity was conceptualized and encountered. And this is um, in particular in light of the French Revolution. And there's some really interesting material that you'll get to at the end of the book and the end of our conversation to come uh, that looks at the ways that Um, uh, changes in the way that writers were thinking about modernity, the nation, and women's bodies in particular are also evoking transformations in this category of hysteria as a pathology. There's also some really interesting attention to the way that doctors are manipulating writings about hysteria as a way to empower themselves, um, to create a space for um, the doctors um, and their power and their role um, in the transforming social, political and religious landscapes that Sabine is looking at. So there's a lot here. It's a really rich study. Um, It's, it's, I think, required reading for anybody who's interested in and working on 18th century medicine and science. And it's also got a picture on the cover or a series of pictures on the cover of a device that I will refer to in this medium as a colander dildo. And once you get a copy of the book and see what I'm talking about, um, you will know what I mean. So on that note, um, I will let you get to the conversation, but thank you so much as ever for your support of the channel for listening. Um, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Sabine Arnaud about her new book on hysteria. Welcome to the new books in science, technology and society podcast Sabine. And thanks so much for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it.
1: Well, thank you, Carla. I'm really excited to be with you today.
0: So, Sabine, let's start as is kind of traditional for the channel um, by saying a little bit or by talking a little bit about how you came to the field and specifically what brought you to the history of science and medicine as a discipline.
1: Well, actually, I discovered this field really, really late. I mean, I had been reading Michel Foucault very early on, but without associating, you know, the history of madness or all of his works on, of medicine, on medicine with a field. And I first studied art history, then aesthetics, then philosophy. And then I went to the U.S. to do a PhD in comparative literature. Wow. <laughs> so just <laughs> it's quite a long along trajectory. And when... When I decided, I mean, when I was at the time of doing my dissertation, I wanted to work on the 18th century. And one of the things that fascinated me in the 18th century was the fact that it was, that this relationship between body and mind was constantly highlighted by writers such as Diderot and and, and, and many others. And I was also really excited by the fact that it was a very inter, interdisciplinary I mean, more more exactly a pre-disciplinary time, you know, where uh, men of letter read philosophy, medicine, novels, and and write all along these these formats and and these fields. And reading while reading Gilroy, i said I was, I was i was wondering what what, what you know all these, these these categories such as vapors and, and hysteric i mean hysteric feats and and suffocation were coming along so much and i suddenly discovered that they were also used by all these doctors who were also publishing very, very exciting texts of art and texts worthy of, you know, a literary reading. And and and, and so this 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 actually led me to the field of history of science. <laughs> you know, I did it the other way around. And so then starting my dissertation, I suddenly discovered there was all this all these things I had to tackle with. <laughs> <laughs> and and so this this was a journey because it was just from a discovery to many others. <laughs>
0: You know, I think that's actually not an uncommon experience for a lot of us, right? We find our way to this field, not knowing initially that it even exists and kind of right. um, exploring our way there. So that actually makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, so, so yeah. The book that we're talking about today focuses on hysteria. Right? Um, the subtitle is The Invention of a Medical Category Between 1670 and 1820. So Sabine, so, mm-hmm. what brought you to this particular focus for the book? Why hysteria? How did you come here? I mean,
1: I guess while writing these, while reading these, these these texts from the from the 18th century, I was fascinated that so much attention had been brought to Australia in the 19th century, and that I was already seeing this category before, and that very very few scholars had talked about that. But not only that, but the fact that it was a totally 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 different category at the time, and that it was used in ways that would be totally forbidden in the 19th century and so it seemed that there was there uh, not only one but many 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 different usages of 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 the word and of the topic and none uh, of these political uh, um, effects and uh, effects Impact for for both understanding the eighteenth century and the move towards the nineteenth century after the French Revolution, or in England, um the political moves as, as well, and that so much was there. <laughs> <laughs> so that that it was actually then quite a a challenge to encompass that in in one vote. But that was also what I really wanted to bring all of that together and see that we had to deal with all of these interpretations at the same time. Mm
0: -hmm. Excellent. So the book explores a history of discursive practices that played a role in constructing hysteria as a pathology. And it asks and answers a major question. What made it possible, this is in the words of the book, to view dozens of different diagnoses as variants of a single pathology, hysteria. And you offer us, I think, a really, really rich way of thinking about this. And I think a way of thinking about and practicing the history and the genealogy of this Pathology and this kind of set of um, ways of thinking about um, and writing about this pathology in a way that's kind of a model moving forward as well. One of the answers that the book offers, and this is again in the words of the book, is that one of the things that that made it possible is a long process of rewriting and negotiation over the definition of these diagnoses, um, which enabled this retrospective assimilation, which was driven, um, in the words of the book, by enormously diverse political and epistemological stakes. So this is just to lay a bit of foundation for listeners. Now throughout the book, and now let's just kind of dive into the introduction, right? Throughout the book, one of the things that emerges immediately um, and exists as a thread throughout is the importance of studying writing practices. Sometimes Mm -hmm. um, in the book, you refer to these as enunciations, but throughout the importance of genres, of genres of writing, of practices of writing, um, and including non-medical or what we might think of as a non-medical writing corpus is absolutely central or seems at least to me to be absolutely central to what you're arguing in the book. So let's start by talking about that. What brought you here in this study to a focus on writing Um, for you? What made it... Or, well, can you just talk about that? Like, for you, uh, how did you come to identify this as such a central part of what was happening in your study?
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you for the question. I mean, I think that there were different reasons. I mean, one was literally the fascination um, that, that I experienced that I felt while, while reading some of these books, such as the one from, you know, or, or from Revillon, where I said, this is such a fantastic, you know, piece of writing by itself, you know. But um, what made it then particularly important, the reason why I gave it such a space within the book, is the fact that I realized that for this category to be established, Actually, none of the interpretative um, link that had been offered was announced. I mean, and and this is in a way what the, the chapter one construct by going through three main interpretation um, of of, of um, and three main contexts of usage of of, of and I mean, one being um, um, a way to distinguish class and 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 and, and see. And distinguish the aristocracy from from and the pathologies of the aristocracy from others. Uh, one to distinguish between genders, and and, and one to distinguish between religious um, pathologies and, and a reinterpretation of conversion and mystical and and, um, and, 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 and feeds from from, from 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 coming from experiences of ecstasy or so, and and that none of these interpretation was enough to um, explain all hysteria became and an such a category that could encompass so many different interpretation and contexts and and, and, and um, that it was why by studying the uses of citations the the, the the way all these texts refer to some authors refer to some, short narratives referred to uh, a common um, use of of, of, of language and, and of a tradition that that one could see and 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 trace really what I mean this this fantastic creation of a word and of a medical category um, and then this led me even further to um, to analyze really what was so particular about 18th century medicine, uh, which in a way, I mean, I see still as an exemplary case of a category of, med- of medical diagnosis in the 18th century. Um, the 18th century has been a little bit left on the side as, as uh, in terms of medicine. It's often looked at as, you know, a century which didn't bring Discoveries such as the 19th century, and which can be a bit forgotten, that maybe things start with mesmer as a first step towards psychoanalysis, and but but that before you know there's nothing. happening. <laughs> <laughs> and so, what I try to, to show is that with this use of, of writing practices, there was a creation of of um, this complicity with with the patient, and uh, and in a way something very close to what has been emphasized in the last 30 years as something very important, which is to let the patient talk, to give importance to what he says, to uh, encourage patients to write their own narrative and to create this way um, access for the the doctor to to a wealth of information that, that had been left on the side in the 19th and early 20th century as unnecessary in an era of objective knowledge. So there are writing practices come as many, many (laughs) layers for me.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much. Now, sort of getting into Chapter 1, since you've um, kind of already really beautifully brought us into that context one of the points that you make here was that the term hysteria didn't actually come into use by a number of physicians in France until the 1760s. And it was only invoked, um, as you call it, in earnest at the turn of the 19th century. So this actually raises a really fascinating methodological um, kind of problem or opportunity, right? Or certainly something that I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about given um, what you were just talking about. So given this uh, multiplicity of kinds of things that people were talking about and kinds of ways that they were enunciating that in this period you're looking at, how did you as an author identif- identify and also curate this range of materials and terms and discussions that you're going to incorporate here? Um, sort of put another way, um, how did you decide what to bring into your archive and what was relevant given the fact that not everyone was using this terminology hysteria?
1: Yes, that was one of the challenges of the book, indeed. Because if you read a description of tetanus, of ergo, um, in in the 18th century, you will see some of the symptoms. And since in the 18th century, there is no proper list of, of symptoms for hysteria, what could be part of what was not going to be part of. And so... I considered mostly what was the function of these texts, in which way did they insert themselves in a series of texts, which did they respond to or reply to, and and which texts did they recognize as um, part of the same research, part of the same foundational um, research of a new category. And since... 18th century doctors tend to quote a lot and, and establish their authority by referring to other doctors. Um, I could reconstitute this, this 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 link between between doctors and see which sectors that themselves selected. Um, my, my, my main, I would say that my main uh, methodological uh, commitment there was to forget anything that had been written on hysteria after 1820 and, and, and to really start from what do these physicians, men of letter, philosophers, uh, narrators look for? What are they interested in themselves? What do they link these hysteric fits to? And no matter if afterwards this would play a role or not, uh, the important thing for me was not to not look for what had been identified later on in the 19th century or in the 20th century as hysteria.
0: (laughs) So it sounds like in a really interesting way, a kind of um, practice of forgetting was part of your methodology. Right. <laughs> right, Which is interesting, I love that So you um, very recently Or just um, kind of a few minutes ago Mentioned these three threads That the first chapter takes us through Right, The construction of a female illness An approach to pathology That established the role of a social class And also a medical interpretation Of what are called fits And we'll talk about those later That was proposed in a religious context So I'd like to ask you to talk about Just a couple of these as a way to open this up For our listeners, how did, uh, so let's take on class um, specifically Mm -hmm. to talk about this. Can you talk a little bit about the way that social class and specifically an association of hysteria with the aristocratic class, as you've just mentioned, come into the picture? What's important for us to understand about the connection between hysteria and the aristocracy at this point of the story um, in order to lay a foundation that you think is important for what's to come.
1: I think that, that one of the things that I, I depict in the book is you know where the complicity between between doctors and members of of, of the aristocracy. Um, the, the, in, in France the, the the King Louis XIV was depicted as vaporous. Um, uh, as having fits of melancholy, bouts of melancholy, uh, George III in England was also um, um, uh, presented as having this this, this hysteric fit, and um, many um, uh, many many writers at the time. Already start making fun about the fact that the aristocracy wants to have the same pathology as the king, and, <laughs> um, um, and so and, and they make even more fun of the bourgeois who want to imitate the aristocracy and 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 and, con, and, and try to emulate them and 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 reconstitute the life of the court um, uh, in in their own in their own little salon. And so there is this idea that the pathology of the king becomes. A model for for, for everyone in in in, in 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 his desire to be as close as possible to the king. On the other hand, what is also important is that doctors uh, in the eighteenth century um, were trying to get their entry in the aristocracy. They were these were also a way um, for doctors from the province from the provinces in France to come to um, Paris or to Versailles. Their diplomas were. Not allowing them to do so unless an aristocrat would ask them to come. Um, so we can see also this category as a chance, I mean, in these writings about, about hysteric fit, as a chance for them to create a relationship, to initiate a relationship with members of the aristocracy, and while their writing will address the sensibility of aristocrat, um, to show them that they are ready to understand them and to support them in their units.
0: Now, another um, really interesting thread here that you talk about is this thread of religion. And specifically, Mm -hmm. um, the chapter considers, this is chapter one, the link between hysteria and ideas of possession. Now, one of the things that's happening here that's really interesting from the perspective of historiography or methodology is that you're making a point here or asking us to think about the connection between hysteria and religion or, or the relationship to religious context in a way that's um, quite different from what some readers and some writers have come to this topic assuming. So can you talk a little bit about the significance of the religious context here and its connection with hysteria? How, um, if, you know, if you are thinking about it in this way, how is your approach to situating hysteria within a religious context um, importantly different from what some other scholars are doing? I mean, one of
1: the things that, that really interested me was um, to see that this medical uh, prism had, had, had taken over a religious prism, but that it had been mostly used, and um, this party following Dosetto and Foucault uh, at a certain point um, with a complicity between the church and. And uh, who came to, to see doctors so that they would diagnose, um, uh, I mean, asked to support, invited the doctors into convents convent so that they would um, see if any of these um, diabolic manifestations, so-called diabolic manifestation, were um, actually pathological ones. Um, but further um, into this research, discovering all into specific crises, such as uh, Jensenism. I mean, I could have written also the, about the, the, the French prophets. I'm not doing it here because this book would have become enormous if I had <laughs> to talk about everything in the 18th century where hysteria was, was, was used. But um, Jensenists um, having uh, pathological fit on the town of on de paris uh, were interpreted as um having bouts of, 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 of hysteria or, or of melancholy um, of nervous illness uh, effect of sympathy, and 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 all this was a political tool to discredit jansenism at a moment when Jansenism was attracting more and more people from all classes. Uh, who were gathering in Paris um, in first on the tomb of the Paris and afterwards in um, hidden places. So, um, and this went so far as having religious Gentilist people write about. These moments and these thoughts saying no, these are not uh, hysteric feats, and this is why. So that they, in their uh, report about um, those experiences of ecstasy, of those experiences of of of, of convulsions, were integrating uh, those interpretation from doctors to contradict them.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Great. Uh, thank you so much. Now, if we move from here, as we move from here to the next chapter, we move into a really interesting exploration of the role of images and of metaphor to what's going on here. So you make a point here in Chapter 2 that definitions of hysteria were inadequate, like definitions themselves for the purpose of the physicians that you're talking about here. And so physicians, um, in order to talk about this and communicate about this, were relying instead on images and on metaph- Metaphors, And you talk about the importance of images of rural animals, um, images of dogs and of wolves, and you take us through a catalog of metaphors and images um, that became associated with these diagnoses. So the image of Proteus, the image of a chameleon, and the image of a hydra receive especially close study here, and they're really fascinating. These three metaphors, as you show, um, the Proteus, chameleon, and hydra, bound together texts from 1575 to 1820 around a similar diagnosis. So there's this really interesting use and treatment of metaphor as a kind of binding device. So what I want to do is just kind of hit the ball um, back to you and ask you to talk a little bit about this. So just to kind of open up, um, can you say a little bit about what was inadequate for for, uh, physicians in these definitions and why were metaphors so useful and so important? What kind of work did these metaphors do um, for these physicians in their practice as um, kind of writers and diagnosers?
1: Yes, thank you. Um, th- I think that, that um, what's very striking indeed about in about in in many of these, these these writing from from doctors is that that they start uh, their treatises by saying we cannot define hysteria, and so hysteria is. From the outset presented as the pathology that cannot be defined, and this precisely in an era of the 18th century that really wants to define. We are at the time of the encyclopedia of the creation and the publication of many, many dictionaries of the also the first dictionaries of medicine. So we're at a time where you know creating categories and and diagnoses and new diagnoses and and defining them is really one of the of the of the important um, activity and. and and, and here they start by saying no, this is not possible. And and and, 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 and sometimes you can sense a bit of, of, of frustration also because this this forces them to move out of, of what they see themselves to be expected to do, right? And 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 what gathers many of these texts and what also allows and has allowed me to, to trace a link between these texts is this um, need and this desire to, to Provide an image, an image, or um, that will give a sense of the illness, and that will convey also the emotional impact of of watching uh, an hysteric patient or an hysteric person, and, um, and give um, the, the reader what a, what a, what an effect of surprise, of fear, of 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 um, outstanding, um, g- Emotion can can provoke a body which is um, which can appear just seem uh, dead because is is without any strength and lying down and seem not to breathe or on the contrary having unexpected force um, and uh, an incredible violence um, when uh, this is a frail body of a young woman and 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 and, and that uh, nothing seems to. Prepare her to, to react. So, so um, I think that these images have, have really contributed in in, in giving I and mean, in, in in creating the the, the characteristic of, of this pathology and in marking the imagination um, of the readers, uh, possibly of the patients themselves, and and of the physician as they taught each other, uh, as they taught their students about this category.
0: So in this chapter, not only is metaphor um, a really important discursive device here, but also um, one of the things that's really striking here is the importance of repetition um, to the Hmm. making of a discourse. So you talk specifically here about the significance of repetition in terms of repeated quotations, um, and you take us specifically into the use of a reference to um, Plato's Timaeus, that, um, as you're showing here, creates continuity among very different kinds of texts. But in general, um, you know, since the book so beautifully brings out the importance of these discursive devices throughout the chapters, not just here, but also elsewhere, it's striking how much repetition becomes such an important kind of tool of art for the making of this discourse. So can you talk a little bit about that sort of the importance of repetition, maybe repeated quotation in this context, but for you, even more generally, the significance of that as a as a craft here?
1: Yes, yeah, I think indeed mean, that it, it is a very important um, element in the creation of the category, and this, in a way, uh, the 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 creation itself, the, the first appearance of the um, diagnosis, whichever it is, and in this particular case of the word historia, is not what makes it important. What makes it important is that it's going to be used and reused and reused in many contexts. Uh, so there is. I would say indeed, as, as you, as you suggest in your question, there is uh, the repetition of certain referen- references and certain quotes that, that doctors will um, use and, and, and cite from each other and reuse and displace uh, while displacing sometimes their meaning. Um, but there is also very importantly for the book, this idea that it is through the repeat through its repetition that this category uh, became established. And because um, we, could, we can see it through medical writing, philosophical writing, political pamphlets, um, correspondences, um, any kind of, of text that 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 in this repetition The importance of the category becomes established, but the meaning constantly changed. So we are in this double, I would say, double tendency, one of establishment and one of multiplication, of multiplicity of meaning, uh, constant diversification of its possibilities, of its connotations, and also then of its denotations.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. So as we move from this to the next chapter, we move into a chapter that takes us back into the engagement between hysteria and an aristocratic audience specifically by looking at a range of literary genres that physicians were using and also adapting in order to present this pathology to this particular kind of audience. And you take us through several of these genres um, and they include dialogue, autobiography, letters of different sorts. So um, you both look at fictional correspondence um, sort of uh, writers who are imitating fiction writers of the era and also uh, consultations that are happening um, between patients and physicians through letters and also anecdotes. Okay, so what I'd like to um, uh, kind of open up here are at least a couple of these genres um, to, to kind of give listeners a sense of their importance. Now, you argue here throughout this chapter that these genres are helping to shape a new image of the physician. And, and this is a new image as, um the physician as somebody who is close to his patients. And as you say here um, in the words of the book, these genres helped shape this image of the physician, um, uh, not only the physician, but also a pathology that was an effect of sensibility, an effect of an aristocratic way of life. Okay, so that's the groundwork. So let's get into some of the details. Now, for me, one of the more fascinating genres that you're looking at here is the genre of a dialogue. Dialogues were common in the 16th and 17th centuries for treatises on rhetoric and, and for treatises on kind of fashionable topics court. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting here about the dialogue I think, and this is totally idiosyncratic right, but I'm mm-hmm. really interested in the way that you're showing the relationship of the dialogue to kind of ways of conveying dynamics, um, the dynamics of relationships, the rhythm of knowledge um, as you kind of put it at one point. So I'd just love to hear you talking a little bit about this. Um, how did medical writers use the genre of the dialogue? And for you, um, what's most interesting about that? And, and perhaps more broadly, for you, what's most interesting about the ways that they're using these genres kind of more generally in this context?
1: Right. Thank you. Yeah, I think that one of the things that was for me very exciting while reading these texts was the ways they give a space for the patient, and w- in which they create um, a patient and, and give tools to their potential patient to talk about their own body. Um, by giving a space by giving this voice to to, to, to someone who wouldn't who don't have the, the knowledge of the of the doctor but yet is making suggestion to the doctor is bringing out descriptions that are helpful to the doctor to talk about the body who challenges the doctor um, with his own impression with or with her with both sex um, was gender uh, with her own um, experience of the illness, um, there, there is a space which is created, there is a space which is created not only for the doctor and his colleagues, not only the doctor and scientists, but for all those who are interested by the illness, all those that are fascinated by the pathology, all those that... Experience or have the idea that at any moment in their life they have seen or experienced uh, the pathology, and that any can contribute. Um, because what becomes really important at that point is the particularity of the disease, is the way that it can take so many shapes, and 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 there all are invited to 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 bring their their. The, the, their idea of, the, of 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 the pathology. So I think that, that was for me very fascinating to see all uh, the challenge this way. Um, a certain idea of medicine as being remote from the patient, how uh, they use strategically to move towards the vernacular um, and 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 invite invite a contribution from all and can get close to the patient.
0: Fabulous. Thank you so much. And there's a bunch of material in this chapter um, that we won't have time to talk about in any detail, but I just want to let listeners know um, there are some really fascinating discussions here of all of these genres, of the use of autobiography, of the use of correspondence, um, and as anecdotes, right, Um, or the use of anecdotes to um, create this pathology in different ways. And it's really, really interesting. So, listeners yes. who are yeah like. Particular.
1: I mean, I'm I mean, happy like to to add something. Please, uh, if, yeah, if, uh, please do. Uh, which is, I mean, I think that that what another thing that was really important actually while 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 writing this chapter is that I realized how much um, the, the creating knowledge because um, I mean is. Really, in the process of selecting the words and selecting the ways to to talk about this knowledge, and that we cannot separate um, a content that would be delivered from the way it is delivered, and that doctors in the eighteenth century were extremely aware of that, and and really coined the, the inness and, and framed the inness and define describe the illness by choosing uh, specific ways to talk about it and that that we cannot separate the two. Yeah, I think that's one of the very important things in in this book.
0: (laughs) Absolutely, and I think the book makes that point really compellingly and just kind of as a footnote, I think this is, I totally agree with you and I think this is one of the reasons why there's actually a lot of, um, there's some really exciting work right now coming from and out of scholars who are using this um, as a kind of point of departure and bringing together media studies, right, studies of media mm-hmm. in form with STS and with history of science and medicine um, in exciting ways that really explore um, this kind of central point that you're just um, uh, enunciating and elaborating right now. I think it's a really, really important point, and thank you so much for, um, for articulating that. Okay. So, okay. so as we move from chapter three to chapter four, um, we move into a chapter that looks at the description of fits, of vapors, of vaporous fits um, to, as you put it here in the book, exemplify the relationship between body and mind Irrespective of medical concerns. And this mm-hmm. chapter looks at the work of several authors from the Republic of Letters in order to, as you again put it here, consider contradictory conceptions of physiological phenomena. Now um, so what I want to do here is again just kind of turn this over to you um, and ask you to talk about what you think is most interesting and exciting about this. And the first thing that I'd love to hear a little bit about is just this idea of vapors as an as an art. As a fashion, mm. so for you, can you talk a little bit about this and open this up for us? What's interesting um, from your perspective for us to understand about the way vapors and fits were practiced as a kind of art or a fashion and works in this period?
1: Yes, I mean, I think that one of the exciting thing is that is that here at that point we see all um, a certain a certain code, a certain way to express emotion is gonna is gonna develop and it's gonna frame and, 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 and create the way people are gonna react to, 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 to certain things and are gonna allow their body um, to react in certain contexts um, knowing that they are watch and 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 at the same time with a very 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 strong sense of what are the limits. It's not that boundaries disappear, it's not that that uh, in the 18th century, um, you can do without the séance, but there are moments where where you can play with them, and 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 hysteric fits become a way to very. Silently, I mean, very, very cautiously play with those boundaries and reverse them up to a certain point, uh, where, uh, a woman is going to show parts, uh, uh, is going to have a fit and, 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 play, and be so present that, 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 uh, we might, you know, undo a little bit of dress and we might see a little bit of her body, but, but, you know, this will be. Forgiven, this will be accepted because this is an historic fate. Uh, it will be a moment where you know, <coughs> where everything is um, on the on 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 the at risk, and at the same time, for it to work, people have to be very conscious of what they do. So th- there is this idea that it can um, it can allow. Emotion and it can favor um, the manifestation of these emotions as long as these people are very very con- con- uh, confident and, and 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 aware of what they're doing so we're buffing in Emotion and manipulation at the same time, mm-hmm. and this in a way links to the history of emotion that that, 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 that has been developing in, in, in the last few years. Uh, where are we in the field of emotion? Where are we in the one of pathology? When is it that 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 a a sensitive uh, person is becoming a patient, is it the moment when the doctor says she has become a patient? We're always in between. Mm -hmm.
0: Fabulous. Now, one of the things that's going to happen as we move further into the book is there's going to be a more um, increasingly explicit focus on narrative, um, the, f- the shape of narrative, the force of narrative, and the significance of narrative um, in creating this discourse. And this actually starts to happen here in this chapter, chapter four, before we get to like chapter five, which is all about narrative. And one of the ways that this happens is that you're looking specifically here, at least in um, some point of the chapter, at the essay, as a narrative form, insofar as um, authors are using it to explore this idea of a practice of fits, or like vapors as an art or a fashion. And you look um, at a number of different authors. Diderot is one of them. Um, So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Sort of how are... Um, Well, there's actually a couple of different things that come up at least that are interesting about this. One is the use of the essay as a form for exploring this and also your own practice, again, as an author, in bringing together um, in this chapter and beyond very, very different kinds of writings into a coherent body and making them speak to each other. Um, So can you talk a little bit about what you might find interesting about that set of issues, essays specifically, and bringing together a very diverse body um, and making it into a coherent body for looking at this phenomenon. Yes, um,
1: there is this, this. I mean, one of the things that was really um, important for me was to really um, pin down the, the singularity of the 18th century of, of, of and through all this variety of writing of this of this uh, uh, desire. I thought to 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 to, to convey. Thought through narrative, through story, to have the reader think, and so to not give in um, uh, uh, what we would expect or what we would de- now describe as a coherent, linear um, um, text, where you you know where you start and you know where you're going, mm-hmm. and, and <laughs> but to play and to create display with a reader where he's going to be surprised in which he's going to be, um, first thinking one. maybe we're going, you know, this, this is the, the hypothesis. This is what it would demonstrate and then go the other way around. Because in the meantime, the text is created to have him take the, the opposite opinion. So, so I think that one of the fascinating things of, the, of, 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 of the branding of, Many of the writings of the eighteenth century is their way to to create stories, to 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 give to never have a, a strict moral line, but to have the reader deduct moral ideas from what he will read. Um and, 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 and this through what we have since classified as philosophical work, or moral work, or scientific work. We're always in between.
0: So as we, I mean, one of the really interesting things that happens as we continue that into the next chapter, um, and you've, you really bring us into the importance and the increasing importance of narrative form from the 1750s onward in, um, in what you call here inscribing physiological disorders into a coherent progression, is that you take us into the importance and the role of narrative form in fiction. Right? And this chapter looks at a series of novels. It focuses on three novels in particular, in which, as you put it here, the body's manifestations appear as a code, as a truth. Or as a manipulation, and this depends on the particular narrative demands of the author. So the three or the three novels that you bring us into um, include a novel by Lennox, *The Female Quixote*; a novel by Godwin, um, *Things as They Are*; or *The Adventures of Caleb Williams*; and a novel by Diderot on a nun. So I would just love for you to say a little bit about. Um, uh, To kind of describe for us, if there's one of these that you are particularly interested in, right, the Lennox, the Godwin, or the Diderot, do you have a favorite here? And would you mind just kind of picking an example and using it to exemplify um, the importance of this genre of fiction and of novels in particular um, to um, opening up this history and this moment in um, the discourse of hysteria for us?
1: Thank you. Yes, I will. Um, I guess I guess I like um, the nine from Diderot because of the diversity of of, of, of the, uh, perceptions of of hysteria that that it that it offers, um, and 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 and. and Yes, the, the the we see in this and um, what one of the things that's interesting actually and that that, that um, is particularly fascinating is that the word hysteria never appears in this book. And this I can't help always telling people at the time where we are, you know, where we have databases where everyone. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> work with keywords. Um, and yet, we have the perfect descriptions um, of uh, the hysteric fits as um, offered by Vigero's contemporaries. So, um, and, 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 and his book could be seen as making a study of the different possibilities um, uh, um, the different types of crisis that are gathered <laughs> um, within the, the, the definition of hysteria um, we, we see nuns at different moments of their lives and different uh, emotional uh, crises, and, and 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 these bodies are presented as um, torn with conversion and 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 and, and, and um, hitting um, the wall, or as 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 fainting, um, uh, and 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 forgetting even what they've experienced, uh, as in ecstasy, uh, as in moment of desire, and 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 even for many moments. So um, all these constellations of of, of uh, emotions are. Never interpreted as an illness. They're always presented to the reader, for the reader to understand what are the emotions experienced by these characters. And the reader, by reading um, all these bodily manifestations, interprets that what kind of crisis? These actors, these <laughs> characters, are going through. Right. So, um, doing so, I mean, we can see the literary uses of 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 these um, and the literary interpretation of the same manifestations that are in a medical context seen as pathology. Suddenly, so the question is no longer if a person is sick or not, but simply what is she experiencing, and the body just the. Just there to reveal um what the person thinks and feels. Mm-hmm. So there, I mean this 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 I mean I think that that, that what it this chapter is, is 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 meant to to indicate in a different way than, than chapter four is how much um, those are prisms of interpretation and depending on on which one depending on, on the users you can do of this interpretation and you want to do of this interpretation the words you will use are different and the interpretation will be mm-hmm.
0: Great, thank you. And so, also in this chapter, just to signal this for listeners, there's also a really careful attention to um, physicians' observations. And you uh, make a point here that in these observations, to cure is to find the story. The physician becomes a narrator. And you chart a difference in the writing, or a change, a transformation in the writing practices here from the early 17th century to the early 19th century, insofar as the writing practice transforms from a practice that prioritize handling as many cases as possible and arriving at a kind of general discourse to a writing practice that kind of lingers slowly over the details. Now, Uh, this becomes really interesting in terms of how you're engaging the work and the ideas of Foucault. Foucault comes up all over the book, right? This is one of the um, consistent interlocutors of the study, at least from the perspective of, you know, me as one reader. But Mm -hmm. here, um, one of the things that you're showing here in this chapter, and and I'd really love to hear a little bit more about this, is that kind of not... Perhaps contra Foucault, but also um, maybe better put, a little bit different from what Foucault is showing, what develops in much medical writing over the late 18th century, and this becomes clear in this um, part of the book, is not so much a gaze, um, right, as uh, listeners will have found in the work of Foucault in this period, but instead a form of narrative intelligence. So can you talk a little bit about that? What's significant about that shift between understanding this transformation as um, the emergence of a form of narrative intelligence rather than a kind of gaze?
1: Yeah, yes, thank you. I mean, I think that, that um, Foucault was indeed very, very important in, 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 in first getting to this field of, 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 of research, but also in um, the attention I gave to language. and, and But to the point of, willing to offer some other keys Uh, I think that indeed defining and and, and categorizing is one but that there are many others that are developed in the 18th century and and narrative is one of them Um, narrative is particularly important in the case of hysteria Uh, I would say um, first in relation to what we mentioned earlier, the difficulty to offer a definition and, and the need to find a current for the illness, but beyond even the question of hysteria, um, in a change uh, in the interpretation of the, of the pathology um, and of pathologies in general, um, in appropriating the illness to his patient. And so no longer uh, looking at it from the in- outside, but really in creating a link between the biography, um, the morals, uh, the emotions, the history of the patient, the the, 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 the the place where he lived and the interaction he had or she had, to and, and linking all these elements to what he felt to what was then Seen as a as, as a pathology, um, there we can see also the the, the the circulation of course of way of understanding between men of letters and 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 and, and doctors uh, who adopt a way of of, of talking about uh, the modern subject in in the in in the late eighteenth century uh, with the bildungsroman with with I mean where the more and more attention is brought to the emotion, to the education, um, to the experience of, 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 of the subject. Um, I forgot what I wanted to... <laughs>
0: That's great. Actually, that's, that's great. Um, so what we could actually move to now, maybe, um, and if you, you know, think of anything else that you wanted to, to mention, we can totally just bring that up, you know, whenever you want, but it but, might come back later. Um, but as we move to the last body chapter of the book, chapter six, we move to a story about transformations in the wake of the French revolution. So this chapter considers how physicians are reframing their social and scientific status in the wake of the Revolution. You argue here that this period saw the construction of, um, as you put it here, a new status for the doctor that emphasized his role And his power. And we see this in lots of examples in this chapter. One of the particularly fascinating examples um, is the example of mesmerism. Now, your understanding of the practice of mesmer actually importantly diverges from how other studies understand his practice. Um, And because that's so important, and because he's such a central figure um, in this period, and at least the historiography of science, um, I wonder if you couldn't talk a little bit about that. For you, what's most important about kind of understanding mesmer and mesmerism here, and what's importantly different in the way that you're understanding this, given how um, lots of other studies do? Yes,
1: thank you. And this actually links to to, to the previous question Perfect. and what I wanted to, <laughs> to yeah. say about it. I mean, I actually would favor um, narrative, the role of narrative, as the important step of, of, of the... Late 18th century in the building of a corpora on hysteria and of an interpretation of hysteria um, over the the, the the role of Mesmer. I mean, Mesmer has been um, highlighted and as well as Pysseghur uh, because of their practices and um, and especially because of somnambulism as a pre. Sharko uh, and Freudian um, therapy, and uh, I think that what really um, is important um, for us and in, 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 the, in the construction of 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 of, of as a, as a, as, a, as a pathology that 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 would be at the center of so many writing in the 19th century is the space it gives for the patient for his biography and that this will indeed reappear um, a lot with psychoanalysis when Mm -hmm. medicine has become a space functioning in a what has been called objective manner Mm -hmm. where specific question have to be raised and where questions do not so much uh, depend upon patient any longer and where there is a the development of a uniform practice then you know this create a space for and the need for something different and and and, and, and this will be then taken on by psychoanalysis and i think that we can see um, in the late eighteenth century with the importance given to narrative with the importance to uh, linking emotions and 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 crisis um, a moment when that first really developed Great. and this for this I think that this 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 takes over the importance of of mesmer in, in the creation of, of the pathology.
0: Wonderful. Now, as we move from toward the conclusion of our conversation, we're actually going to move toward taking on um, a theme or a, a problem, a topic that actually is pretty common, right? In terms of how people think about hysteria, but that we haven't actually talked about explicitly. So I want to bring us there um, before we wrap up. And this is the connection between um, hysteria and women. Right. Hysteria Mm -hmm. and gender. Now, starting in the 1770s, um, as you show here in this chapter six, physicians are describing hysteria as a dangerous symptom of modernity. There's a new focus here on the health of the nation's body. Right. And you talk about this um, in really beautiful detail in this chapter. And it shifted the stakes. Of hysteric illness, and this is in the words of the book. It was no longer, um, as a result, a diagnosis of the upper classes, but instead, as you show here, a diagnosis that facilitated a medical discourse on women. So as our maybe um, kind of the final question to lead us into the conclusion, Sabine, can you talk about this? What's happening in this period um, that shifts the discourse specifically to this focus on women? And um, what's important for us to understand about that in your opinion? Yes, Um, I think that that there is a... a huge shift that happens after the, 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 the French
1: Revolution and, 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 and that this entails so many important things about um, uh, the way we think about medicine, about the way um, the role of doctors is placed as you've uh, emphasized earlier, I mean that the, 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 there is a development in the eighteenth century of uh, medicine which is turned towards the aristocracy um, with indeed all these writings that are also meant to be read by this uh, elite or by, the, or by by the court as a whole um This is, in a way, the ideal patient at the time. After the French Revolution, uh, of course, there is no longer a point in writing for the aristocracy, but there is a new big topic, which is the building of the French nation. Um, And this chapter is indeed dedicated, really, to to, to France. Well, the other one, also on England, uh, over England, uh, a little bit, this one is really strictly um, on the French case why that? Because there is a development in France in those early years which can, cannot be seen in England at the same time of those treatises on women and on Australia, as a illness for women. Uh, This will come only later um, in England. And um, why women? Because in the building of the French nation what becomes important are the new French citizens. And to ensure that those French citizens are healthy and ready to go and fight to bring freedom all over the world, right? We need to make sure that... um, pregnant women take care of their body and that they give birth to healthy citizens. And so there is a complete reframing of the pathology of the patient that are supposed to be afflicted by the pathology of the politics and entitled with the pathology, since now it's going to be thought a lot more in terms of public health or in public morality or in education of women. Um, And there is a shift also of the place of the doctor, which is now on the side of the nation, helping the state to think what
0: is good uh, for the years to come. So, Sabine, thank you so much. If you can believe it, we've almost been talking for an hour. Um, <laughs> now, even though you know we, we've been talking for an hour, there's, of course, a ton of material we haven't had a chance to get to. So before we wrap up, is there anything in particular that we haven't talked about um, pertaining to the book but that you'd like to mention for listeners?
1: I mean, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll develop a tiny bit more the the, the last point point. and just saying what 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 is important for me there is that um, over a period of 150 years, I mean, which is a, the period which is mostly studied in the book between 16, 1670 and 1820, what happens is that it's not the same approach that is developed to historic affection. It's not described in the same kind of books. It appears for some in, doctor, in books for doctors. Uh, it appears uh, then on books on nervous affection, then in nosologies, then in on women. So, these books are not read by the same kind of readers. I mean, we assist to a constant shift of what it is that is described, the way it is described, um, the purposes that are Linked to it, the stakes that are um, involved in it, and yet there is then this sense that in in the 1800s that with this we have one pathology, and that of course this pathology is a pathology of women because the word is linked to the to to the Greek root, and that it can only be (laughs) an illness of women. So. Mm-hmm. This book tries to, to to really pin on. I mean, this, this fascination of what can be done while rewriting, uh, citing, and 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 negotiating and, and reformulating over and over again the meaning, the relationship between fits. The, 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 their association to specific political events, their association to a sensibility, their association to a gender. And how is it that this happens? So <coughs> with the, I would say with the, with, I mean, hysteria is really an exemplary case to see how can we make meaning out of the body? Um, how can we use it to talk about the relationship between body and soul, the relationship between different classes, the relationship between religious uh, uh, people, the relationship between anything that becomes at a certain moment important, anything that becomes revelatory of uh, of of certain people or or, they, or their ideas. Um, this is what I mean. One of the things that I've tried to describe.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. And now that the book is out, um, Sabine, what are you currently working on? What's currently inspiring you and um, kind of what, what are you researching now uh, I'm actually now working on deafness. Um, you
1: will not be surprised. The fascination for uh, medicine and the fascination for language, <laughs> has find its way. <laughs> makes sense. Uh, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And uh, and this led me actually to work on the 19th century mainly. Even though the 18th century will still be very present because I I, I just miss it too much if I if I go away for for too long. <laughs> So, yes, history of psychiatry is still there, history of medicine, a little bit of legal history, uh, a little bit of history of pedagogy. This needs to find its way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, best of luck with that research. It also sounds fascinating. And be in touch when that comes out, and we'll talk about that, too. You know, <laughs> but in the meantime, thank you so much for taking time I'd out of that you work to talk for with me today. It's me through the book and making me discover it again. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very, very much for joining us, and we'll catch you next time.